You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. Well, welcome to First and Second Kings. My name is David. I'm a pastor here. And for the next 10 weeks, we are going to be walking through two books in the Bible, though historically they were one book. Just, and so we're just going to call the kings for the most part. And, uh, and that's going to be our goal. Now, um, let me actually begin with prayer, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the books that we're going to be studying. Okay, so let's, let's begin with prayer. Jesus, we come before you. You are the living word. You are the word of life. Um, you are the word that transforms our lives. You bring life, you are light, and you are truth, and only when we walk in accordance to your way can our lives work the way they're supposed to work. And so we come to your word tonight, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, we pray for a heart, to a listening heart, and that, we, that you would grant us your wisdom, wisdom from above. That's our desire, so we commit tonight to you and this class to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you should have uh, some notes and some cookies. Sorry, you guys, you should have your notes, and you may have cookies, I don't know, but um, we've got some really good cookies tonight. Okay, so... A couple things as we as we dive into first and second kings one um i don't know what i was thinking when i chose first and second kings <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time for no but it's true first and second kings i've been studying it and i've realized something that a lot of people who are really smart who've written about first and second kings don't agree with each other in terms of the different angles. And so I realize it is a much more difficult book to walk through than I realized. The other thing that makes things difficult is that we're going to be doing First and Second Kings over 10 weeks, which is kind of ridiculous. But I know how many people come out to class on the middle of July basically nobody. So we have to uh, get through before the really warm weather comes. Fortunately, it's been a record cold spring, so we should be okay. Uh, you guys will keep coming. Uh, thirdly, is that so in order to walk through the Book of Kings, we're going to have to pull a tiny Tim. There you go. We are going to be tiptoeing through the tulips. Uh, we cannot go into much, much detail in First and Second Kings in 10 weeks. So we're going to be looking at it from a macro level, probably from 30,000 feet. We will dive down and look at some specific stories. But what I need from you is I need you, and, and it would be ironic if you went through the entire book of First and Second Kings without reading it, <laughs> but it happens. It happens. We, I've, I've taught many books in the Bible and people don't read the books in the Bible, but you actually need to. 
Um, so as you read through, so you're going to be reading Kings each week. And um, I have a schedule down in front of you. And what is required is for you to read through these chapters each week. Um, and preferably read through and so that you're ready for the particular chapters that we're going to look at in the upcoming week. Now you can do it both ways. You could read ahead and then listen. Or you can listen and with that background, read. And, and both ways work, actually. Um, it, it depends on, on what you prefer. Okay? But that's what I'm hoping you guys are going to be doing over these, uh, over these weeks. So have a look at the schedule. Our, uh, it goes from 10 weeks and it'll go all the way to June 28th, right before the summer kicks in. And um, the other thing I would encourage you is as you're reading First and Second Kings... Um, don't just try to get through the text. Allow the text to get through you. Uh, allow, this is, after all, the Word of God. This is God's Word to us. And God's Word is living and active. And God desires to speak to us through His Word. Right? Gotta let somebody in the door. Um, yeah, God desires to speak to us through His Word. And so let me just ask you this, as you begin this class, um, what are some hopes or expectations that you have for this class? What do you hope to get out of this class? You guys put it on the chat because the chat works. Mike, I don't have the door. Okay, you got you left. Okay, good. Uh, oh. I'm understanding whether there's so many bad things. You want to understand why there are so many bad kings, right? Yeah. Yeah, because unlike today, we have a lot of really good political leaders. So why is it? No, sorry. But no, that is a good question. And why in one area, not in the other area? Especially, as we'll find out, in Israel, they're, more, they're all bad kings, whereas in Judah, they tend to be a little more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah, good question. What else? Um, what do you guys put on here? Uh, it's my first time reading First and Second Kings. Well done. Yeah, good. Yeah, yes. Sir. Oh, uh, I confess that I have been uh, corrected a few times, saying God is the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, I seem to hope I can. Um, Change myself to understand it at last decade. Right. But the language I see between these and these ones too is very strong in comparison with the struggle with, especially as I'm teaching on the Ten Commandments on, on, on Sunday mornings. We just began a series on the Ten Commandments. And one of the questions is that, is that when you read the Old Testament and you read about the kings and all, Al, as you're saying, these bad kings and these... So how is the God, how is God the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet does he seem different in some of these narrative books in the Old Testament compared to what we read in Paul's letters or in the Gospels, for example. Yeah, very good. Okay. 
Um, understanding the history of Israel is important to understanding our time and place in end times. Okay, good. Um, anyone else? What other expectations you have? I mean, you all expect it to be fun. I know that. Uh, it, you know what? It will be fun. Um, it will be fun. I want to encourage you to bring your questions to class. Uh, I cannot guarantee that I'll be able to answer them all. I'm drawing from a number of sources for this, uh, for this um, series. One of the top, if not the top, scholar on First and Second Kings. Do you know who it is? You would know. You would know who it is. Ian Proven. Yeah, I've had Ian Proven here speaking at a number of conferences over the years. Just a couple months ago, I had Ian here. Ian is actually, his, his expertise is First and Second Kings. And so I'm friends with Ian. <laughs> or acquaintances. I have his email. Let me put it that way. Uh, <laughs> and so what, I, what can happen is that if you send me a really hard question, I can say, let me think about that. But when I say that, I'm going to be emailing Ian and saying, hey, help me out here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mike. People used to say, jumping Jehoshaphat. And I couldn't find any evidence about how high Jehoshaphat actually jumped. That is a big question, Mike. <laughs> okay, so this is what we're going to be doing. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I, as we dive into the book of Kings, because one of the things we're going to discover, again, this is God's word, and it is God at work in the messiness of this world. And one of the things I love about reading you know, books like First and Second Kings is precisely because it's so messy. It does bring up a lot of questions. And boy, when we make our way through First and Second Kings, there are going to be some strange things that happen. But that's okay, because in our lives, strange things happen. Or is it just me? No, everybody has strange things happening in our lives. And God works in the messiness of our lives. And uh, I think uh, that's why kings can actually help us in our own pilgrimage, in our own walk with Jesus. So, tonight we're going to get started. We're gonna, I'm going to introduce you to the book of Kings. And I am going to, at times, because you are around tables, I will throw out the odd discussion question. So that means you have to talk to each other a little bit. Not difficult questions, just fun questions. Uh, for you guys, because I know that Zoom breakout group are anathema, you hate them. Uh, so your conversation is going to be together and via the chat, okay? Sound good? I got the chat working. Sound good? Good. Okay. So I'm going to begin with the question, why the book of Kings? Why did I choose this book? Again, it's a question I've been asking myself all week long. Um, how many of you have studied the book of Kings? I read, you know, some, I read one of you guys saying that you've never actually read First and Second Kings before. How many of you have read the book of First and Second Kings? Put up your hands. Okay. How many have not? Or, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. How, how, how many of you not read the book of Kings? Put up your hands so I can see. Yeah, a few of you. Yeah. Okay. It's not a book that we often read. It isn't a book that we often read, but there are many reasons why we need to go through this book. For starters, it is in the Bible, and as Christians, we are people of the book. 
We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, right? Uh, and so if you believe this, you should commit yourself to reading God's word. And I think reading Kings will make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, as 2 Timothy 3.15 says. Uh, but how will <laughs> going through a bunch of kings, bad kings, help us spiritually? Well, we'll look at that. Secondly, we're going to go through uh, kings because the kings we encounter in the book of Kings is all part of a big story that carries on until we meet the king in the New Testament. And King Jesus, remember when Jesus was um, nailed to the cross, what was the sign that above him? The king of the Jews, right? King of the Jews. And Jesus, he succeeds where these kings fail. And Jesus, in his life, embodies the kind of kingship that was envisioned all along. Thirdly, it points us to the reality that the kingdom of God is actually quite a bit unlike the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says that once. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. All right, so... The other, the last reason is this. Jesus taught us that the scriptures bear witness about him. And so when we study the book of Kings, first and second Kings, we should not be surprised if we encounter Jesus, the King of Kings. Okay? So what is the book of Kings and how do we read it? This is what the book of Kings is. The book of Kings comprise literature in narrative form with a historiographical and didactic intent. <laughs> what a mouthful. What in the world do I mean by that? Okay. Well, first off, the Book of Kings is literature. It's literature. Um, because it's literature, uh, we're reading something, and we're reading, we have to take into consideration what we're reading. So when we look at the First and, first and Second Kings, what kind of literature are we faced with? What do you think? Yeah, Tom. It's historical. Okay, good. It is historical, but it, but different. But a little bit different. Yeah. What else? It's actually a narrative. It's a story. It is. It's got. It's structured as a story. It's got a beginning. It's got a middle, and it's got an end. And it um, it reads like a story. And so we need to take this into consideration. Whenever you read the Bible, you need to take into consideration the type of literature. If you read the book of Revelation as a story, it's going to throw you off because it's not a story. It's a different kind of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. If you read Paul's letters like a story, again, you'll go off in wrong directions because it's a letter. It's, it's got its own way of writing, right? So it's a narrative. And so right from the get-go, we need to take seriously the fact that Kings is a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It uses metaphors, it uses similes, and other, other literary devices. And as we make our way through it, we're going to come across that there's some Hebrew literary devices that will show up again and again. Now, these are really important. Now, I don't pretend to be an expert on Hebrew literary devices. I know a little bit. Um, for example, 
If ever you read the Old Testament, you'll probably wonder why in the world, if a story happens, do they repeat it? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes something happens, and then somebody comes along and says, what just happened? And then they repeat exactly what happened. And, and it just seems like, well, that seems kind of repetitive, right? Well, it's actually a, um, a literary device. And when in, in, Hebrew, in Hebrew writing, when you repeat something, it's a way of bolding and underlining it, right? It's a way of saying this is really important. The other thing to pay attention to is that if I tell you a story and then I, tell, then I repeat the story, but I make a slight change. Oh, pay attention to that slight change because that in Hebrew writing means there's something you need to pay attention to. Why that slight change? And it's in that slight change where something is being uh, communicated. So those are some things that we're going to come across. One of the things you're going to discover when you uh, read uh, First and Second Kings is that the narrator, the person who writes this, the person who puts this together, loves subtlety. They're, it's very, very subtle. In, in Hebrew writing, typically, they don't say, and look at this! And they make it really big. They're just, it's just this little line, but with a lot of meaning. And so we're going to catch some of those. Even tonight, we're going to look at this, a, a couple of things that are going to be quite fun. Um, so it is literature, but it's also history. And sometimes people say, well, if it's literature, if it's a story, then it's not history. And there's a lot of commentators who would say, well, it's not historical, it's just some story. But why do you have to choose between story and history? Can't a story be true? Right? Tell you a true story, based on a true story. And so that's the second characteristic of First and Second Kings. It is history. But it's not a list of facts. It's not a list of this happened, this happened. It's, the, the narrator is not primarily interested in just laying out a bunch of historical events. The narrator is trying to communicate something, but he is telling us history. It is history. And the last thing about First and Second Kings is that it is didactic. What does didactic mean? It teaches. It teaches and it preaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. It means the author or authors, we're not sure, um, is, is the intent is not to give us a bunch of historical facts, nor was their purpose to give us a nice, tidy story. But what they want to do is they want to teach us theological truths about who God is, what he's like, and how you and I can relate to him. Okay? So, here's an example. Here's an example of what I'm talking about when I talk about the, the theological or the teaching intent. If you've studied Assyrian historiography, and honestly, who hasn't? I've never studied history Assyrian, but I learned, I learned. In Assyria, in Assyrian historiography, they, they tell many similar events that take place as are, is described in First and Second Kings. So Assyria, and if you'll know, Assyria plays a big factor in, in especially in Second Kings. Um, 
Assyria, when it tells its story, when it lays out its history, it does incorporate some of the story of Israel into its history. But it has a name for Israel. And do you know what its name is? It doesn't call it Israel. So when Assyria is referring to what we would now know as Israel, they refer it to, they refer to it as the land of Omri. Omri, O-M-R-I. Who in the world is Omri? Does anybody know? Has anybody ever heard of Omri? Yeah? Yeah, Well, he's a king. He's one of the kings. Yeah, a king. <laughs> he is a king. We find him in, um, in chapter 16. And, and, and he has six to seven verses dedicated to him. <laughs> That's it. There's hardly anything written about him. This is, yeah, and, there's a, and you'll find this. There's a king named Omri, and he did this, this, and this, and he died, and you can read about him in you know, the annals. Of, you can read about him in, the, in, the, in, the, in your history textbook, basically. So the author of First and Second Kings thinks Omri is not a big deal. Now, in history, he's actually a pretty big deal. He's a pretty successful king. So much so that the Assyrians refer to Israel as a land of Omri. But to the Israel, to, to the writer of the first and second kings, like Omri's not, not even worth paying attention to. Is Jeremiah One thing I do know, one thing I do know, the author of first and second kings is I have no idea who it is. <laughs> and in fact, and in fact, Many of the books in the Bible, I mean, we have some traditions about certain people that contributed to the writings, but generally in the Old Testament, there's not that much weight actually given to who wrote it. In our modern age, who wrote a book really matters. In the Old Testament, it doesn't matter as much. And so from every scholar that I've studied, I mean... There's, there's no consensus on who wrote it. But somebody, somebody's put all this together. So how do we know what's God's word if we don't know who wrote it? Would that make a difference? And why? Because it's supposed to be the Holy Yeah. But w would it make a difference? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Oh, sorry, we, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we, we, we receive this as canon, as we, and, 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 and First and Second Kings has been received within, um, within Jewish canon and within Christian canon as being authoritative, always, yeah. But in, in, in our day and age, an author and who wrote something really matters. I'm just saying, in, the, in, in Hebrew writing, authorship and getting it right, if this is not as big of a deal as it is to us in our modern age. But it said all scripture is given under inspiration of God. Absolutely. And we would believe that, yeah. Absolutely. We can talk more about that. Yeah, we can talk more about that. Um, but we don't know. We don't know. Um, but Kings tells a story. It covers history. It has a theological message, yeah. And so what are some of the theological messages that show up in the book of Kings. 
Well, here's some themes that we're going to come across as we make our way through Kings. Theme number one, God is indeed God. <laughs> Don't confuse him with a variety of gods that we're going to come across in First and Second Kings. We're going to come across a lot of idols, a lot of different things that are worshipped in the surrounding regions. But the theme of the book of Kings is that God is God and he is sovereign. That's going to come up over and over again. And, and if you know First and Second Kings, you know that there, at certain times there's going to be a showdown between the false gods and God himself. And we'll see how that plays out. Secondly, because God is God, the Lord demands exclusive worship. And that is an issue that keeps coming up over and over again. Um, God will not stand alongside other gods. He will not be one of many gods. This is on my radar because I'm preaching on the first commandment this weekend. You shall have no other gods before me, right? Um, thirdly, God alone defines true worship and right thinking and living. So it's God who's going to judge the wrongdoers. And it's going to be interesting how, how this plays out. Because there's sometimes you're going to come across things and be like, that seems kind of harsh or that doesn't seem harsh enough. And so we'll, we'll talk about this. Fourthly, God's promise runs throughout kings and he promises his grace towards his people. Uh, even when Israel and Judah are sent into exile, so, sorry, spoiler alert, they get sent into exile, um, but God's promise is not nullified. In fact, God's promise that he makes through Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation and through him all the nations of the world is going to be blessed um, remains intact. So, what we have in First and Second Kings is we have literature, it's telling a story, it's history, it's about events that really happen, and it's didactic, and it's about who God is and how we're to relate to him. So, let's jump into Kings. Any questions before we jump in? We're good? Okay, let's actually turn to Kings. Dun, dun, dun. So it's about a quarter of your way in your Bible. First Kings, here we are. Okay, before we read the first part of, of uh, First Kings chapter 1, um, let me ask you this question. Now this is a loaded question, and I'm actually going to have you guys just take a few moments to talk among yourselves. Now it's loaded, okay? Uh, but it's fun. Actually, I'll just... I'll, I was going to say, it's going to talk about government, good government, but that could get us down the road. Let me ask you this question. Can you have a good government over a population if people cannot agree on what is right and wrong, good or bad? Can you have a good government over a population when there is no consensus of what is good and right what is right and wrong? Why or why not? Does that question make sense? Does that sound like a fun question? Okay, I'm going to give you just a few minutes around your tables, because we got tables here. You guys are going to have to do it on the chat. Um, but that's the question. Can you have a good government over a population if the population does not agree on what is good and what is right? Can you still have a good government? Okay. So I'm going to pause here. 
Okay, so what, what do you guys think? Can, can you have a good government? Can you have a good government if there's not moral consensus among the population? Oh, interesting. How many of you said yes? Did you say yes? Undecided. Undecided, yeah. And you guys are great too. Hey, come on. Wait, let me hear from you. And I'll tell you what these guys have been saying. The, our cyber friends are, 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 are pretty hardcore. They, uh, they, they just said no. Yeah, they just said no. And, and then I tried to, tried to nuance it, and then they put it in all caps. No. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so there is respect, and people may disagree on a number of these issues, but respect. But could you not say, I'm just throwing this out there, could you not say that consensus on the need to respect one another is a, a common good that everybody would hold to? Yeah? But underneath that, there could be lots of differing opinions, right? Okay. Good. Other thoughts? Right. So if a society can't agree on what is good and what is bad, then, you, then a society could not agree on what a good government would even be. Yeah. Right? Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't recognize it. Yeah, good. Now what do you guys are, you guys are all gray over here, right? You're, you're, Al, what were you saying? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. You weren't sure? Oh, you said yes. Yeah. You can have a good government? Yeah. Okay. Without moral consensus. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, that's interesting, yeah. A democracy, a modern democracy, a current democracy, or a democracy as it was envisioned, yeah. Okay, anyhow, any other comments? I just wanted to use this because this is going to be a theme in First and Second Kings because you're going to have kings and you're going to have all different views about what is good and what is right and what is wrong and you're going to see how do you lead a nation when you're in that kind of chaos and can you? Okay, so this is a theme that's going to show up again and again in, uh, in, in, in First and Second Kings. They're big questions and so I keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but we're going to begin with the story. The beginning of 1 Kings begins with a death, or a slow death that takes place over a couple of chapters, is the death of King David. Yeah. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, so much about the story of David, his rise to kingship and all the challenges along the way. Um, but now, once we get to the beginning of 1 Kings, we read these words. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, with cloths, clothes, yeah, um, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for uh, my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. 
So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Let's go read it a little further ahead. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogo, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So we begin, we begin our story with David was old and advanced in years. And we learn in 2 Samuel that there's a promise that was given to David. And we see this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's a promise from God to David. And it's via Nathan the prophet. And the, the promise that God gives David is what? Does anybody know the gist of it? I'm going to establish your, 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 your kingdom forever. You establish your kingdom, your dynasty is going to last forever. Unlike Saul, which dynasty end, David's dynasty would not end with his death. But then the question becomes, who is going to sit on the throne? Because David's got some sons, right? Will it be Adonijah or Solomon? And the first two chapters of 1 Kings try to answer this question. Now, 1 King 1 reveals that it will be Solomon who will become king. Now, it's a close call, because Adonijah, <laughs> he wants to be king. He exalts himself. Uh, but then we read in chapter 2 about David uh, giving some instructions to Solomon to secure the fact that he could become king. Okay. So let's look at some of these themes. The beginning of Kings, we find a very aging David. Now, again, we need to be very careful. We're reading not just history. This is well-crafted stuff. And so we get this picture right at the very beginning. What kind of picture do we get of David? He's finished. He's old, and he's hanging on by a thread. Yeah, he's got a beautiful woman with him. And, da and you know David with the women. If you know the story of David and, and, and beautiful women bathing and all sorts of things, David usually doesn't have any problem with going after young women. But here, he's so old that he's got the most beautiful woman in all of Israel. And he's, he's just, she just keeps him warm. There's no intimacy. 
And it looks like David's in the position where he is, yeah, he's losing control of his country and his family. And the picture is a, is a king who's growing more and more impotent, not just sexually, but as a leader. That's the image that's coming through in these early verses. Now, Adonijah, who's the fourth son of David, uh, he sees weakness and he sees an opportunity. My dad's dying. My dad's weak. And what does he do? He declares himself as king. I'll be king. And it's interesting, the text tells us that he exalted himself. And I just, just, just as, a, as, a, as a pause, it's hard to think of a situation in the Bible, and maybe there is, and I just can't think of it, but usually people who exalt themselves do not turn out well. It, it, can you think of, I can't think of an example of somebody who pushes himself to the front of the line where it turns out well. Which I think is an interesting, you know, I mean, Jesus talks about that. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, right? And I don't know about you. I mean, this, okay, I'm just kind of going off, off script a little bit, but... Uh, Whenever I put myself forward in a way that exalts myself or puts me into a good light, I never feel good afterwards. I never feel good. And sometimes we do this, like, and we do it for justice reasons. We think, well, you know, I, I'm, I should get the promotion or I should do it. But I don't know about you, but whenever I push myself to the front and say, it never feels good. Mm -hmm. And here you have, um, I'm going to be so lost here. Yeah. Or just watch your recording tomorrow. Oh, is there a recording? Yeah. Yeah. Record it, yeah. Turn your mic off. I can hear you guys. <laughs> um, he pushes himself right to the front, but it doesn't turn out very well. And it's kind of funny if it wasn't for the fact it's kind of sad what takes place. Um, he rallies some key leaders around him, this, uh, this Adonijah. He rallies some of the old guard. He brings in uh, Joab, the old military leader. He brings in you know, some, uh, an old priest. And, he, and he, he brings these guys around him. And it looks like he's going to become king. So in the middle of this attempted coup, Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, who are, interestingly enough are the ones who are left out, they were not invited, they're not invited to Ab Adonijah's big celebration. And so they go to David and they say, Hey, did you not say that Solomon was going to become king? And so they asked David to intervene on behalf of Solomon. And it's interesting because David, Dave rallies. Dave? Can I call him Dave? No, David rallies. He rallies a bit. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, hang on. No, it should be Solomon, right? And so the result is kind of comical if it didn't involve life and death. Um, so here you got Adonijah and his buddies, and they're having a dinner party. And they're like, all right, 
Three cheers to the new king, Adonijah. Hip, hip, hooray. And then they hear this trumpet sounds going on in the city. And they're like, what in the world is making that sound? And it's kind of funny, this young guy, this young guy who's showing up earlier in, in, in Samuel, his name's Jonathan. He comes running on the scene. And Jonathan is a bit naive. And he runs up. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 43. Um, while they're still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man. And bring, bring us some good news. And Jonathan answered Adonijah. Now, in your text, what, how many of you have the NIV? What does it say, Ray? What, what verse? Uh, verse 43. Yeah, okay, same in the ESV. Apparently in the Hebrew it says, yes, I am bringing good news. In the sense that Jonathan isn't really clued into the fact that Adonijah wants to become king. So he's saying, hey, there's some good news. Solomon is king. Isn't this great? Apparently, that's what the actual Hebrew says. He said, our, our, our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on a king's mule, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet had anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the king is in a, or so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you've heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make your, the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day by your own eyes seeing it. And then all the guests of Adonijah, they're like, uh, yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> and so they all leave him. And, and Adonijah's like, whoa, okay, this is not good. Goes to Solomon, or he runs actually to, to, um, to the temple, or he runs to the, a sacred, sacred spot, and he's just, you know, basically doesn't want uh, Solomon to kill him, and Solomon says, all right, just, just go home, just go home. So it's, 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 a, it's kind of a funny story, but it's a bit strange, right? So chapter one, you get this kind of showdown, who's going to become king? By the time you get to the end of chapter one, Solomon looks like he's going to become king. Looks like it's been established, right? When you get to chapter two, yeah, sure, yeah. It's, it's like right on the most sacred spot in a holy place. There's probably some horns that were, <clears throat> that were sticking up. It's right on basically the altar where sacrifices and all that would be done. It's basically one of the most holy places in the sacred spot. And basically saying, I'm as close to God. <laughs> it's, do, do you remember? In, okay, you probably don't remember. I remember in school. At recess time, I'd see somebody I didn't like, and I'd punch them. And they would come, and they would come running after me. And so where would I go? I'd run there, I'd stand by the teacher. It's like, what are you going to do? Come on. Right? They're not going to hit me, because I'm by the, it's kind of like that. You're very close to the Holy Place, close to God. You can't kill him. And so that's what he's saying. He's like, no, don't kill me. I'm next, 
you know, I'm in this very holy place. It would be a horrible thing for you to do to kill me in such a context. That's what he's doing. Right? Yeah, no, I don't think they're meant to be demonic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is First Kings chapter 1. Once you get to chapter 2, so chapter 1 is about, okay, who's going to become king? Solomon's going to become king. Chapter 2 gets really interesting because David rallies and he's got some instructions for his new king. And his, his instructions are interesting. Uh, let's look at what some of these instructions are. Chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know, know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me. Okay? He talks about what he did. Verse 6, act there, therefore according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray hair, gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with um, Barzillai, the Gilead. And then later on, verse 8, he goes, and then there's also Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Barunum, who cursed me when I went down to Mahanam. And he says, don't hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man. You know what you need to do. So it's the interesting instructions that he gets from David. David basically says, all right, um, we got some loose ends for you to tie up. Solomon. He encourages, first off, he encourages Solomon, hey, as king, you need to walk like a king. You need to obey the teaching that we come across in Deuteronomy. The law of Moses, observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands. And so that you may prosper in all that you do. And the Lord will keep his promise and all those sorts of things. Now that's good. But then, oh, but I should say, when David tells Solomon this, he says, make sure you walk in accordance to the law of Moses, what Deuteronomy lays out for leaders. You have to realize that that is going to be the measurement against which every king is going to be measured from now on. How does this king live in relationship to what we read in Deuteronomy, to the law of Moses? Okay, this is really important. But... Then, then, we're going to come back to this. David gives Solomon some additional instructions. And what are those instructions? Yes, walk in the ways of the Lord, my son. But, Solomon, my dear son, come a little closer. 
I got two guys that I need you to take out. <laughs> Do us a favor, right? There's Joab and there's Shimei. I mean, that's basically what's going on here. I want you to tie up some loose ends, Solomon. There are some wrongs that need to be punished and kindness is rewarded. And whenever there's a transfer of power, some things need to be taken into consideration. And what David doesn't want to see happening is another uncomfortable situation like what took place with Adonijah. It needs to be avoided. And Solomon, if you're going to become king, you need to know there's some guys in the kingdom that could cause you some problems, right? One of them is Joab. You guys, if now Joab, if you don't remember what Joab was like, Joab is a ruthless leader. He's a ruthless military leader. He was David's right-hand man, but he went rogue a bunch of times, and he ended up killing a lot of David's leaders because Joab wanted to be top gun. And so Joab had a number of people kill. He had killed a guy named uh, Abner. He killed a guy named Amasa, who was uh, the leader of the military. Joab kills him so he could become um, the military leader. So in all these things, David gives these instructions. And he says, okay, there's three guys. There's Barzillai of Gilead, there's Shimei, and there's Joab. So here's a question. And this is the fun, this is where Kings gets quite fun. Why, why does David issue a death warrant to get rid of Shimei and Joab? Put a horse in there. What's that? Why, why, does he, why does he want to kill, why does he have Solomon kill these guys? Why does he put a, this death warrant on these two guys? Well, he wants you to, he wants Solomon to do it, yeah. Yeah. Right. So why? Well, and he did make a promise to, okay, so here's the story. Well, does anybody know what's the story of Shimei? What happens to him? Does, does anybody remember? It's one of those... Well, there's a guy named Shimei, and he is the guy, when David was kind of starting off, he was cursing David. David and his army's going by, and he's like, you're, you're nothing. And he's just like, you know, taunting him, and he's yelling at him. And everybody's like, David, you should kill this guy. He goes, no, I'm not going to kill him. Because who knows, maybe the Lord directed him. Maybe God has spoken through him. And there's a message that he's saying to me that I need to take to heart. Okay, that's, that's, that's what happens, right? And so he doesn't kill Shimei. But now David's dying. He's like, that rotten Shimei. Yeah, I said I wouldn't touch him. But Solomon, my dear son, I need you to take him out. <laughs> Cut him off. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's, there's a political reason that's going on here. Joab and Shimei, and I only, 
this is stuff that I'm learning along the way too. So you just, uh, Joab and Shimei, they both um, represent people who could be quite powerful, who could rally their, their family or their, their population against a new leader. So Shimei is connected to the Benjamites. Joab, he has, well, Joab is with, with Adonijah, right? He's actually supporting the wrong king in the first place. And so both these guys represent a bit of a threat to this new young king. And so that's partly what's going on. But it's interesting because the reason why David gives, the, 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 the reason he gives, he says, this is to atone for blood guilt. For both Joab and Shimei have sinned against, you know, they, they've sinned against God and they need to pay the debt for their sins. But this is where you have to read a little carefully because, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but David had no problem with Joab when Joab was doing David's dirty work. Joab was a pretty handy guy to have around. It was Joab that arranged for the whole situation with uh, Bathsheba's husband, right, with Uriah, to have him killed in battle. It's Joab who's able to do a lot of things to secure David's power. So he talks about blood guilt, but is it really blood guilt or is it a political call that he's making? And so he seems to be arguing, not for religious reasons, but more likely for political reasons. And so David's big concern is to bring stability to the realm. As his son steps onto the stage, he needs to tie up some loose ends. And so by the end of the chapter 2, we're presented with a plan from David for his son Solomon, what needed to be done in order to transfer to this new reign, and for the sake of peace, for the sake of his son's future success, for the greater good, certain people need to disappear. And with these problems out of the way, things will go smoothly. Now, Solomon doesn't miss a beat. He's like, say no more, Dad. Say no more. I'm on it. And he's on it. And he does take, he does um, deal with these two guys. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, this is going to be part of the story of Solomon. So I'm going to ask you a question. So, Typically, if you've ever heard a sermon about Solomon, if you were to summarize like a typical sermon on Solomon's life, how does it go? What's that? Wisest man on earth? Yeah, yeah, okay. So you did it. So you got good Solomon. Not so good Solomon. And typically how the story of Solomon is told is Solomon, he started off full of promise. He's, you know, he asked God for wisdom and God grants him wisdom and he's this wonderful king, and, but he doesn't finish well. Right? That's, that's how most sermons on Solomon are taught. And to be honest, that's how I've often preached on Solomon myself. You have good Solomon, bad Solomon story. 
I remember doing the, you guys ever do walk through the Bible? Where you walk through the Bible, is it the Bible in a day or walk, it's called walk through the Bible, I think. So you go through, you know, the Bible in a day and there's lots of actions. And they would always say, when you got the kings, they go, um, Saul, no heart, David, whole heart, Solomon, half heart. <laughs> so that's the way you describe it, right? And so usually that's how it's told. Solomon was good, and, but doesn't end well, right? At least because of the wise, we're going to look at some other things too. But here's the thing. It actually, yeah, but here's the thing. If you read the text carefully, it's a lot more nuanced, the story of Solomon. And this is where we have to look very carefully. What is the narrator teaching us? Because this picture of Solomon good, then became bad, is a bit simplistic. And life is usually not that simplistic. If you read 1 Kings, you get an interesting thing about Solomon. Um, when you get to chapter 3, you see, see Solomon, I'm going to pray for wisdom. And we're going to talk about that next week, right? But it's not as if wisdom and Solomon do not show up before them. In fact, the word wisdom shows up a couple times before we get to the great chapter where Solomon prays for wisdom. Where do we come across wisdom? Well, it shows up here. It's an interesting thing. Um, look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 6. This is David's advice to his son. Act therefore, what does it say? Act therefore according to your wisdom. It's the same word. Do not let, you know, Joab's gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Then you'll take him out. Jump down, verse 9. Talking about Shimei. Therefore do not hold him guiltless for, what does it say? You are a man of wisdom. And so it's interesting. The, the narrator is making a very interesting point here. And we need to catch this. It's not like Solomon had no wisdom and prayed for wisdom and then everything was great. He had wisdom. And it shows up a couple times here. This emphasis on wisdom. But it's a different kind of wisdom. And... And I just want to say, by the time you get to chapter 2, the, actually the picture we get of David and Solomon, David at the end of his life and Solomon starting out, is not a great picture. And one of the things you need to realize is the Bible, the Bible doesn't pull its punches when it comes to people's weaknesses and foibles. One of the dangers of Sunday school is that we teach these things called heroes of the Bible. There are no heroes in the Bible except one. There's no heroes in the Bible. Every person other than Jesus, <laughs> other than God's the only hero in the Bible, every other person has its foibles. Everyone, everyone else has its weaknesses. And one of the dangers of Sunday school and sometimes the way we preach you know, the Bible is that we, we, we exalt guys like David, we exalt guys like Solomon as, as, as doing no wrong. But it's not, life's not like that. 
And if you look carefully at how the scripture and how the narrator plays this out, you're going to notice some things about this Solomon. He was, and that's a really good point, Ray, because that's another important thing in the Bible, is that to be a man after God's own heart does not mean you live perfectly. Amen. But yeah, which, which is a big amen, right? It's, it's so important because, and so what differentiate like a David from a Saul, for example, is, is his heart. Like David, his heart was, he was all in, but he was a man of a lot of weaknesses. And one of his weaknesses was with women. And this weakness with women messes up his whole family. Look at the story of David's family. You want to see a dysfunction, dysfunctional family? Look at David's family. And it's no accident that his family is a complete mess when you look at David's relationships with women they're all over the place but in the midst of all the messiness and all of our sinfulness and all of our failings there was a desire to be all in with God and God saw that in his heart and I think that that's also a picture of God's grace which goes runs all throughout scripture as well right okay so David mentions three characters there's Brazil um, <laughs> Barzillai the Gideonite, and Joab and Shimei. So Bar Barzillai, he instructs Solomon to, to deal kindly with him. That's good. But then he reminds Solomon that Joab had killed some of David's commanders. So take him out. And I think there's something not right with David at this point, at the end of his, at the end of his life. He's got to come to the end of his life by strategically wanting to get rid of people who may cause problems for his son down the road. And so what we find here is Solomon using his wisdom early on. This is before chapter 3. Solomon's using his wisdom, but he's using his wisdom for political means. And he's, in, he's told to take out these two guys. And we know down the road, if you, if you read this story, you'll see that Shimei, at first Solomon says, all right, I'm not going to kill you, but you stay in Jerusalem, which is strategic. Stay in Jerusalem because Shimei is a Benjamite, and so he can't rally his people against Solomon. You just stay in Jerusalem. If you leave Jerusalem, you're dead. Well, two of his servants run away. Shimei follows them, and he says, look, I told you. Kills him. Or he gets somebody to kill him. Same with uh, Joab. He kills Joab. And even Adonijah, he kills... I mean, Adonijah is not the sharpest tool in the book, in the, in the toolbox, because Adonijah, one, he tries to become king. It fails. And then what does he do? He goes to Bathsheba. He goes, um, would it be okay if I, um, if I married Abishag? She's just really pretty, and I really like her. And she, yeah, she keep me warm, and you know, I, you know, she warmed dad up, and like, what? I mean, the guy again, he's he's not. And Bathsheba says, "Oh, I'll tell my son." Well, you know, Adonijah is, is killed as a result because it's obvious he's not just wanting a wife. He's thinking, okay, Abishag was with David. David was king. If I'm with Abishag, then this gives me more legitimacy to become king. So he still wants to challenge his brother for kingship. That's what's going on. 
So Solomon kills him. Now the key point in all this that we're making at this point is that Solomon has wisdom by chapter 2, but it is a wisdom of a different kind. And the kind of wisdom he has is a political wisdom. Now, let me just ask you this, because I think this would be fun. How is, um, how is worldly wisdom, because it is wisdom, the Bible still calls it wisdom. How is worldly wisdom, political wisdom, different from godly wisdom? Yeah, but you'd say, I mean, you could say all wisdom, all wisdom is, the source of all wisdom comes from God, right? Because God is all wise. Maybe. So you say there's a difference. One is a source in God, one is not, okay? One's like an A-plan, B-plan. Okay, all right. Yeah, go. Yeah, okay, yeah, so the, 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 the way of God's wisdom is not necessarily intuitive, right? It, it actually turns things upside down um, and presents things in ways that are not necessarily easily seen, right? It, it, it's, it's a revealed wisdom, right? It's not something you've just figured out, it's a revealed wisdom. Okay, good. Anything else? Right. Good. So, why, so political wisdom is where you use your wisdom to gain power and to take control, where God's wisdom puts, puts all that into God's hands. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. I, that's, and that's an interesting, that'll be an interesting theme, I think, next week when we look at, uh, at Solomon in, in close, closer detail. Yeah, political choices are not necessarily moral, are not always moral. Yeah, good. Yeah, Maxine. Sometimes men can't explain this before. Um, God understood what Solomon's dreams were. Building that temple was an arduous journey, and that's what Solomon was good at, is never giving up and keep building. Okay, so, so, okay, we're going to time out on that. I, I know. I, I'm going to put a time out because, Maxine, you're always reading ahead. All right, so <laughs> next week, next week we will get to, uh, I think next week we will get to the temple. But there's actually some interesting, there's an interesting side to that. And I don't want to give it away because, but, okay. Um, anything else? There is a difference between wisdom and knowledge, yeah. Oh, that's good. So the different kinds of wisdom, do they lead to peace? One does not necessarily lead to peace, unless peace is my enemies are killed. Uh, <laughs> it's a different kind of peace, right? Yeah. Good. So you'd have wisdom, but having wisdom is not enough. It's what you do with it. Yeah. 
That's good. Well, keep that question in the back of your mind because I think it's a really, it's not an easy question. Um, I should have I, my friend Ivan here because he could probably unpack this a little bit because there is wisdom. It's just worldly wisdom. that got, and, and there is worldly wisdom. That's what Solomon's using. Like his decisions to kill these two guys strategically made sense. And the Bible calls it wisdom. But it's a different kind of wisdom to what we're going to be introduced to next week. So, one question I have for you, and again, just keep this in your back pocket. When you are in an emergency situation, when push comes to shove, how do you respond? What kind of wisdom do you use? You don't have to answer that, but I think that's a big question. When, when you're under pressure and your boss catches you or you have to do something to get through a situation, very complex interpersonal personnel issue and you're in charge of HR and you have to resolve it, what kind of wisdom do you use? When you have that difficult client, Philip, and, and you have wisdom to use, what kind of wisdom do you use? I mean, this is a really important question. Okay? Hopefully, hopefully. But is that your first thing to go to? I, I'll be honest, it's not, it's not mine. It, I, I would like it to be. Uh, so that's the first. Let's just wrap things up uh, for tonight. Um, oh, you kind of joked that you were taught that David was wholehearted, Solomon was half-hearted. What do you say they were? Uh, I'm going to tell you next week. Yeah, I'll tell you next week. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead. <laughs> Maybe I don't know yet. Um, that was a use of wisdom, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's different kinds of wisdom in the world. James talks about wisdom from above, right? Solomon seems to be endowed with good practical wisdom early on, but he uses it in an interesting way. Secondly, the other thing that comes out of these two chapters is this weird interplay of the cruelty of human politics and yet God's purposes are still being carried out. Right? This is a messy, messy situation with Adonijah and Solomon. It's totally messy and with David in the state that he is in, it's completely messy. But through it all, God's purposes are being Forwarded, which I think is an important theme that we're going to come back to again and again. That is, it is in the messiness of this world that God's purposes can be carried out. Yeah, right. Yes, yes, God works with what He's got. That's right. Some of us are being dealt kings and queens. Some of us have twos and threes, and He works with what, what He's got. Yeah. We know by verse 46 in chapter 2 that the kingdom is established in the house of David, which was the promise, right? So God continues to work through these messy lives to carry out his purposes. Okay. Thirdly, human government is messy. <laughs> it's always messy. And if you don't believe me, read... Again, the book of Daniel, read the book of Revelation, um, read 
any book in the Bible. <laughs> Politics, human government is always messy. The fourth thing is this, is that there is this interesting dynamic between human action and divine purpose. Solomon exercises his wisdom, but it's a wisdom of a different kind. It's kind of a ruthless kind. But despite this, the narrator shows that Solomon, okay, even though he uses, takes out these two guys, three guys actually, the narrator makes it very clear that the choice for king from God was Solomon. Was Solomon. And he was going to be given the opportunity to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. And what we're going to discover, not to give you too much ahead, but Solomon is one of the most perfect examples of a, of a guy with so much potential who misses such a great opportunity. His enthronement, as one guy puts this, his enthronement was an example of grace in the long account of missed opportunity and ultimate failure. Yeah, it'll be interesting when we look at him. And finally, the fifth um, theme that comes out of here is all the kings we're going to encounter in First and Second Kings. I'm just going to give you guys a heads up. They all struggle to some degree. There are some good kings we're going to come across, uh, but they are, none of them are perfect. And in fact, as you go through First and Second Kings, and I think this happens throughout many of the books in the Bible. How many of you, some of you were here when I taught Judges last year. And when we were going through Judges, by the end, our hearts was just, were, they were just crying out for a savior. Because these judges were just, they got worse and worse and worse and worse. We're going to get to the point and we're going to look at these kings and be like, God, you got to do something. You have to do something. And in fact, as you make your way through the Old Testament, what happens is there's this growing realization that these kings, they, they just don't cut it. And that God is going to have to intervene. In fact, there's a growing realization between the Old Testament and the New Testament that not only is God going to have to intervene, but these kings are always going to fall short. That God himself somehow is going to have to embody whatever this king is going to be. And so there's this growing messianic expectation that God will send his anointed one who will finally get things right. And it's in that context that Jesus steps in. Because Jesus is the king. He is the king. And he reflects kingship that all these other kings fall short of. And so our hearts, as we make our way through First and Second Kings, should be longing, longing for the king of kings. For the kingdom that is different. Because Jesus, unlike Solomon, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't play power games. The way of Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's 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 upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom of mercy, of forgiveness, of justice and peace. And so our desire as we go through first and second kings, hopefully, will be the word Maranatha, the prayer of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Does that make sense? So next week we're gonna so I wanted to start off a little bit slower. So we just did these two chapters just to kind of get the landscape a little bit. 
Um, next week is like we go into second gear. We're going to start going a little bit fast. You're going to, if you look at the schedule, there's, there's some weeks where it's just like, I'm in like whatever gear. We're doing like 10 chapters in one, one shot. But uh, that's why we got to read ahead just to, uh, just to cover everything. Yeah. I'm leaving you on a cliffhanger. Yes, Mike. Um, by the time we get to next week, it's like, okay, what kind of person is this Solomon going to be? We know he's got wisdom, but political savvy wisdom. What's it going to look like next week? All right, so we're going to dive in. So next week, I believe, we do, um, what do we do? We do chapters 3 to 5, and then we're going to jump in and look at the decline of Solomon. Okay, one of the things I want you to think about in this, I got so many things on my mind, but one of the things I want you to think about is um, I think when you read First and Second Kings, I'll tell you what I see. Maybe this is because I'm a pastor. What I see is I see a lot of warnings for those in the church in any form of leadership. It doesn't have to be the church, but that's just my world. I'm in the church. It could be in the office. It could be in the school. It could be in the government. It could be wherever. But I see the dangers and how a leader in the church can fall in first and second kings big time big themes in it and so many of you are in different roles in the church you have different places in the church some of you are in small groups everyone has influence over somebody whether it be your own family or whatever but let let first and second kings speak into your life where you happen to be wherever you have influence over another person let the warnings of first and second kings stand clear because I think there's something, something in these books that I think will speak into our lives, especially insofar as we, we have some authority over other people. Does that make sense? I don't know if that made sense at all. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe what I'm, I'm discerning as I'm reading through the book of Kings. I think there's a lot to be said about those who are in leadership. Okay. All right. So next week we dive in deeper into Solomon. So let's uh, close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for wisdom from above. And we confess that sometimes our go-to, especially when push comes to shove and when we're in a tight place, is a different kind of wisdom. A wisdom that uh, is self-centered. A wisdom that gets us out of a jam. A wisdom that eliminates our problems even though by doing so we have to do some dodgy things. Lord, that's not the wisdom that you desire us to have. Your word tells us that you grant us wisdom from above. And so help us to know what that looks like. And teach us to look deep into our own hearts to know how we typically will navigate things. Our desire is to walk with you and to honor you in all that we say and do. Our, our desire is to walk in the ways of King Jesus. And so let him be our model. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Let me just hit this. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.